in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. And last week, we looked at verses 1 through 4, which is kind of like the hinge on the door. Uh, The door swings both ways here. And what the writer wants us to see and understand is the glory of Christ in two dimensions. Dimensions which uh, mysteriously merge. And these two dimensions are the deity and the humanity of our Lord Jesus. And he doesn't want to separate them necessarily because Scripture sees those things as being uh, together. Uh, God is a God-man. He is not just at one time God when he comes to earth and another time man. He is a mysterious infusion of being the God-man. It's called, the theologians call it the hypostatic union. It's a big word that means uh, his nature doesn't change and uh, those two natures are fused into one. It's a miracle. And I want to talk to you this morning about the true story of Christmas. This is the true story of Christmas. And Hebrews 2, 1 through 4 was the hinge on which the door swung. You see, in the previous chapter, chapter 1, the writer of Hebrews uh, makes it very clear that Jesus is the final revelation of God. And he asserts his deity and says he's supreme because of who he is as God. He always was. He never had a beginning as God. And verses 1 through 4, uh, he reminds us of the great gospel that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we looked at this so great salvation that we have, there were three things we're reminded of uh, that we should not drift away. We need to check our hearts and our loyalty and our grip and our understanding and our love for the gospel and the salvation which Jesus has provided for us. Uh, secondly... Uh, another application was that we need to see the urgency of the gospel in sharing it. You see, the gospel certainly can be lived out in our lives. Paul tells Peter and reminds the Galatians in Galatians chapter 2 that Peter's legalism was not in line with the gospel. In other words, uh, the the gospel he, he said he believed and the way he lived were not in line. So we live out the truths of the gospel. But the gospel is, first of all, a message. So it demands words. It demands speaking the gospel. And we uh, have an urgency to speak the gospel. There is no plan B. It is the gospel that saves. It is the gospel that rescues. It is the gospel that sanctifies us. The gospel is simply Christ. And the third thing uh, I mentioned uh, last uh, Sunday was that if you have folks who who you would like to set up an appointment with myself or or, uh, or or Charlie or others to share that gospel with, if you would do that, we would love to do that. You have the connection, you have the relationship, uh, uh, and if you uh, at this stage in your life are not as comfortable as as you, as uh, uh, sharing the gospel uh, personally, uh, then we would rather have us share it than than not hear it at all. And so please speak to us, call, text, email, let me know if we can set up appointments with people that you love, you're concerned about, the realities of hell in their soul, and we would love to share the good news of Jesus Christ in a loving and truthful way. So 2, 1 through 4 is the hinge that brings uh, these two sections together because verses 5 through the rest of the chapter here, he's going to talk about the humanity of Christ, the humanity of Christ. In ancient days, there were men like Athanasius, who stood against heretics like Arius. 
who said that Jesus was a created being. And they said, no, he is very God of very God. He is of the same essence as the Father and the Spirit. He is very God of very God. And in our day, in the earlier days, there were liberal attacks on Jesus' deity. No, he was a good teacher. He was a nice man. And books like What Would Jesus Do? Uh, are in his steps by Charles Sheldon, uh, written by a, uh, a liberal, someone who didn't believe the scripture was true and Christ was God, uh, uh, condensed Jesus to do moral teachings. And so there was a pushback against that to explain very clearly that, no, Jesus is God. He's not just a good man. He's not just a good teacher. He is God. He is deity. And all those have been very helpful in clarifying who Jesus is. But we've also neglected the humanity of Christ. And being so... Uh, uh, vocal and concerned about the deity of Christ, which we should be, we don't want to neglect the humanity of Christ and the very fact that Jesus was a man as well, the writer of Hebrews says, is not something that diminishes him. It's something that exalts him, that glorifies him. And we would do well to think deeply about the humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is why the writer of Hebrews brings up chapter 2, verses 5 through 18. The glory of Christ as a man. We're going to see that Jesus is crowned with glory and honor. Look with me in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 5. He's going to say, For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection or submission the world to come whereof we speak. He's going to say that as glorious as angels are in their created state, They are immortal. You think uh, they'll never die. Angels had a beginning. They will uh, never, never have a death. They will, they will, they they will have. uh, They will be cast in like a fire, which is an eternal death. uh, Those who rebelled against God, but but they they live forever. They live forever. They will never know uh, a, a physical death. They're immortal. As glorious as that is, God has not put the world to come. The age to come in submission to them. The first thing I think we can see in this passage is that what is implied here is that God's people will rule over all creation and the world to come. Angels will not, but redeemed mankind will. Unredeemed mankind will not rule over all creation because they are not united to Christ. But what he's saying in here is that the angels uh, are, are wonderful, they, but they are servants. And they have a specific role. They are to minister. They are to do God's bidding. They are to obey His will. But they will not be exalted to reign over all creation with Christ. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, and perhaps you have, or perhaps you haven't. But there is an implied truth here that redeemed mankind will reign with Christ. Over all creation. Hebrews 2 verse 5. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come whereof we speak. God's people will rule over all creation of the world to come. In my understanding of scripture, I believe he's talking about the millennium, which will then after then translate after Satan and, and, uh, and, and all who have rebelled against God or cast a lake of fire will translate then into the new heavens and the new earth. 
God's people will rule over all creation in the world to come, beginning in the millennium and then in the new world, the new heavens and the new earth. But notice what else he says in verse 6. He's going to back this up by telling us uh, God's original purpose. Look what he says in verse 6. But one in a certain place testified, saying, and he's going to quote three, a few verses from Psalm 8 that we read this morning. What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and did set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection or submission under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. The second truth here in this passage is, yes, God's people will rule over all creation and world to come. And here's the reason why. Because God's people were designed, man was designed to rule over creation in the beginning. Man, Adam and Eve were the pinnacle of God's creation because Genesis 1 tells us they were made in His image. Which means, if man is in the image of God, very simply, that means man is like God in many ways. Man is not God, he's creature. But man is like God in many ways and he represents God. He has a delegated uh, dominion, authority. When God created Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve were God's representatives. Genesis 1, 26-28, God gave them authority over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, etc., didn't he? We could say that they were God's vice regents, and another way to say that is Adam and Eve were God's appointed king and queen over creation. They weren't king and queen over him, but God had established them as king and queen over creation. And so that was the original design for man. But notice the rest of the verse there. Verse 8 says, but now we see not yet all things put under him. Something went wrong, didn't it? Something went wrong. Though God's people were designed to rule over creation in the beginning, God's people do not rule over creation now. If we do, it is a very limited sense. Some places you go, you're the hunted, not the hunter. Right? In the animal world. Uh, there's the t- deterioration that's going on all around our world, right? In the physical universe. Things that are beyond our control. And, and since man has sinned, he is, a man fell uh, and he rebelled against God in the garden. He is certainly not as, 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 as richly uh, reflecting the image of God as he was before. I think we can all agree on that. And I think as you look around a society in the world, it'd be very easy for even a skeptic of Scripture to say that there is something very wrong and deeply flawed in the world today, isn't there? Man's moral purity has been lost. His sinful character certainly does not reflect God's holiness. His mind is corrupted by deceit and lies and misunderstanding. His speech does not continually glorify God. It was meant to. His relationships are often governed by selfishness instead of love and so on. Man is still in the image of God. But in every aspect of life, parts of that image have been twisted, distorted, or lost. Um, 
Some of you have upcoming cataract surgery. Some of you have had that or have cataracts. And you know that there's a fogginess, a, 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 a blurriness here. And it's a good example uh, when you get those cataracts lifted, you're able to see more in high definition. And in a sense, uh, that is what humanity, who has, who has uh, uh, distorted and perverted and twisted and corrupted the image of God because of their sin, is like our cataracts. We, we, we do not see the world. We do not uh, uh, um, uh, follow God's word in, in the ways that He has told us to. Or, or there's a blindedness to us. God made man upright, but Ecclesiastes 7.29 says, They have sought out many devices. After we fall, we're still in God's image after the fall, but we're still like God and still represent God, but the image of God in us is distorted. There is a construction that needs to take place. We're less fully like represent God than we were before the entrance of sin. And because the curse from Adam's sin, Genesis 3, didn't just affect Adam's life, did it? It affected even the plants. It affected the entire universe. It took creation out of his control, didn't it? Because it was irresponsible with his sin. The curse from man's sin has made creation more chaotic as it wears out and more sin accumulates. And man's biggest problem is not the universe falling apart, it's himself falling apart as sin. And so, though God's people were designed to rule over creation in the beginning, something is not right. God's people do not rule over creation now as God designed it. Look in verse 9. But we see Jesus. You see that but in contrast here. He's saying we don't see the creation and subjection, submission to, to, to mankind as God's design was, but we see Jesus. What does he mean by that? We'll read further. Who was made a little lower than the angels. Wait a minute. That's what was said about man in Psalm 8. God made him a little lower than the angels uh, uh, to, reflect, uh, to reflect God in, in, in his design. A little lower than the angels. Why did he make him a little lower than the angels? For this purpose. The cross. For the suffering of death. If God sent Jesus as an angel. Angels are immortal, right? Their life continues forever. But he sent Jesus to be a man in a broken, fallen world. Because of sin, man dies. And Jesus had to die. For the suffering of death. Then he says, crowned with glory and honor. Oh, wait a minute. Philippians 2 says he humbled himself and became a man. Where do you see exaltation and crown? Well, you don't really see it in the Gospels, do you, in the life of Jesus? You see flashes of it in the Mount of Transfiguration. But when Jesus Christ comes out of the tomb, he is highly exalted. He is above all. God has given a name that is above every name. And so the resurrection and the ascension of Christ is the crowning of Jesus with glory and honor. But wait, crown with glory and honor? That was in Psalm 8, right? And that's what God gave man, right? And man twisted that. And that glory and honor is, is, is diluted, isn't it? 
I mean, we look at our world and look at humanity and we don't say there's much glory and honor there, do we? We see flashes of it, don't we? But we don't see very much. It's not as it should be. And here's the glorious truth in chapter 2, verse 9. It's this fourth truth, the final truth, that God's Son restores through the offer of a free gift to all humanity. He restores those who accept God's people with their faith in what Christ has done on the cross. He restores God's people to glory through His death and resurrection as a man. As a man. Because he unites the sons of God, his people, with the Son of God. They belong together. They point to one another. Humanity and Messiah stand in close union with one another when we put our faith in what Christ has done in our behalf. Think about how the Lord Jesus exercised that lost dominion even in his earthly life here. Remember, he had dominion over the fish even, didn't he? Remember Peter's casting his net on the other side. Uh, He had dominion over the birds, over the wild beasts. Think about that donkey, even the domesticated beast. He is the last Adam, and Jesus Christ regained that position of dominion and authority. Today, everything is under his feet. A man was crowned with glory and honor. Psalm 8 tells us, but he lost that crown, didn't he? He became a slave to a hideous, cruel master, the master of sin. The image of God distorted, perverted, twisted. But Jesus Christ, and Hebrews 2.9, has regained that glory and honor. And believers today, according to Revelation 1, share that kingly dominion. Revelation 1, verse 5 and 6. Warren Wearsby says, One day, when He establishes that kingdom, we shall reign with Him in glory and honor. Jesus Christ did all this for us, for lost sinners, because, Hebrews 2, 9, of the grace of God. If he had not become man, he could not have died and tasted death, experienced death for every man. It is true that angels cannot die, but it also is true that angels cannot save lost sinners and restore man's lost dominion, which is why the glories of Christmas are so wonderful. Christ in the flesh. Christ is true man. Now, how does Christ do this? Well, when we put our trust in what Jesus did on the cross, Paul says that we as Christians, we have a new nature in Colossians 3.10 that is being renewed in knowledge after the image, again, of its creator. As we gain in more and true understanding of God, His word, and His world, we begin to think more and more of the thoughts that God Himself thinks In His Word, we're renewed in knowledge. We become more like God in our thinking, and our thinking changes our our actions. And and Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we are being changed into His image. From one degree of glory to another, as we look into His glory, the glory of Christ, by the Spirit. And part of growing in Christ is we grow in, in greater maturity, which is growing in greater likeness to God. 
We grow in likeness to Christ in our lives and our character. In fact, the goal, Romans 8 tells us, in Romans 8.29, the goal is that we might be conformed to, there's the word again, image of His Son. And be exactly like Christ in our moral character. And when Jesus returns, 1 Corinthians 15.49, the amazing promise of the New Testament is that just as we have been like that first Adam... In submission to sin and death. We shall also be like Christ. He changes all of that. Morally pure. Never in submission to death again. We can look at death. And we can laugh. He says, just as we bore the image of the man of the earth. Or the man of dust. We shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Through Christ. See, if you're in Christ, your true identity and the full measure of your creation, the image of God, isn't seen in the life of Adam. He failed. That was passed on to us. We rebelled just as much as Adam did, who sinned. The New Testament tells us that God's purpose in creating man in his image was completely realized in the person of Jesus. He himself is the image of God, 2 Corinthians 4.4. He's the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15. In Jesus, we see humanity as it was intended to be. And that should cause us to worship, that can cause us to rejoice, that God has appointed us to be conformed to the image of his Son. Think how glorious that is. First John 3.2 says, when he appears, we shall be like him. Now listen, we've had many funerals uh, over, the, over the past few years. We have people who have gone on to glory. And our hearts weep at that that they are no longer with us. But folks, those people fully reflect the glory of God. And if they came here in this earth, our hearts would actually be tempted to worship them because they reflect the glory of God and His holiness so brilliantly. And they have to say, no, no, worship God. Because that is what Jesus is doing. And that is what He will have done. And that is what He wants to do to us. And that is the glory of Christmas. You see, there's a truth in Hebrews 2, verse 9. Uh, here that it says, When we see Jesus who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor... That he, by the grace of God, should, there's a word, taste death for every man. That doesn't mean like when you go to Sam's Club and you try all the samples on Saturday at lunchtime. That word taste there means he drank the cup to the grounds. It, as a, I, it's, it's, not a, it's not a belittling of tasting death. It's actually, a, uh, it's actually he's pushing the point uh, harder. Let's say that Jesus drank it fully. He drank that cup. He fully tasted death. He drank it. He swished it around. He knew the bitterness of its flavor. And He swallowed it whole on the cross. Here's the amazing truth. He gives us the benefits or privileges of adoption. Now, we'll see those realized fully one day, Romans 8 tells us, because we have not uh, seen the full benefits of it with a glorified body. 
like his son, the first fruits, has received. But there are many things that accomplish this adoption of God bringing us into his forever family and seeing us as his sons. One of the ways is the way God relates to us as Father. As Father. We can say, Our Father who art in heaven. We can relate to God as a child relates to their loving Father. And our relationship to God as our Father is the foundation of many other blessings of the Christian life. It becomes the primary way in which we now relate to God as our identity. He gives us the gift of the Spirit to comfort us, to empower us for ministry, to live the Christian life. He says, you're a son, and if a son, then an heir, in Galatians 4, 7. We're heirs with God and fellow heirs with Christ, Romans 8, 17. We have heirs to a great eternal inheritance, which is imperishable, which will will not corrupt, which is undefiled, which is in heaven, unfading, reserved. All the great privileges and blessings of heaven are laid up for us and put at our disposal because we're children of the King. We're members of the royal family. And you understand that you will one day reign with Christ. Notice that key word, with. Amen. That's why God gives us the privilege. The privilege of walking the same path that Christ walked. The privilege, I said, of enduring sufferings. Because Romans 8 says, if we suffer with Him, that's a mark of our heirship. Because we're God's children, our relationship with each other is far deeper, more intimate than the relationship to the angels. We're all members of one family. That's why the New Testament refers to believers as brothers and sisters in Christ. And there will be one day, as verse 5 says, that God will not put the angels over creation, but humanity. And in fact, He will exalt us over the angels. And we, the clock, 1 Corinthians 6 says, will judge angels. We will judge angels. Now certainly that would probably include the rebellious angels who have been committed in 2 Peter 2.4 to be kept until the judgment. Jude 6 says the rebellious angels have been kept by God until the judgment of the great day, the demonic realm. So we know the rebellious uh, uh, demons will be subject to judgment on that last day as well. We will be a part in their judgment. Folks, it's not clearly indicated whether righteous angels will also go in evaluation of their service as well. But in Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 6.3, it's very possible they're included in Paul's statement. Don't you know that we are to judge angels? Because there's no indication in the context that Paul's speaking of demons or fallen angels. It's not clear, but the point is, God will put us over angels. And that's why he says uh, we're to be very, uh, exercising our discernment and judgment of the Word of God now. And it was in the context of church discipline, discerning one another. When you are in judgment of something else and you are the judge, you're in a position looking down, right? 
Have you ever thought about our position in Christ that will be fully realized in the future? There's a teaching in Revelation 20, verse 4, where John says he saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom judgment was committed. And that's not the angelic realm. There's a, there's a ranking and, and hierarchies of believers, it seems, to, uh, the, the, the scriptures seem to indicate in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the eternal kingdom of God. A reward based for their faithfulness to the Lord. In Matthew 19, 28, he tells his 12 disciples, they'll sit on 12 uh, thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. In 2 Timothy 2.12, he says, If we endure, we shall also reign with him. Revelation 5.10 says, And he hath made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Revelation 24 says, I saw thrones, and they did sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Revelation 26 talks about those who have part in the first resurrection, who will be priests of God in Christ, who shall reign with him a thousand years. The end of the book, Revelation 22, 5, says the Lord, uh, they will not need light, there will be no night there, and it says, and they shall reign forever and ever. It doesn't say they will have a good life forever and ever, though that's true, but they're exalted to reign with who? With Christ. I'd like you to go with me to Revelation chapter 1 and see what Christ has accomplished by becoming a man for us as we wrap up here. Revelation 1, verse 4. John writing to the seven churches. In verse 5 he says, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our own sins in his own blood. That's what Hebrews 2.9 is talking about. He tasted death by the grace of God. And hath made us, notice, has made us kings and priests in the God and His Father, to whom be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. A few chapters over, repeats the same idea in chapter 5 and verse 8, and he says, And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lord, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book, and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain, and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood, out of every kindred and tongue, people and nation, and has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Now we can know those are not angels speaking because God never redeemed angels. And God will not cause angels to reign on this earth. Hebrews 2.5 says it's redeemed humanity. Do you understand what you've been given in Christ? He has seated us in heavenly places with Him. Now, Circumstances might not seem like it, but those are the spiritual realities. I want to show you a, a, a little video I came across here. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sweet video here. As some children are presented a Christmas gift, foster children of adoption papers. It's the best present that any kid could receive. Their foster parents surprised with news that are officially part of their forever family. 
and it's captured in video by a couple in Oregon. And they have, uh, there's, there's six young children wearing pajamas. It must be Christmas morning. And they're sitting on a sofa in a living room at Christmas. The family's sitting down to open their Christmas presents. And the oldest child, a boy, he's handed a gift by the, 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 the foster parent and the parent of the other children there, Michael, who says, this is for you and you and you. And he points to the boy's the biological sister and brother. Uh, the, the family's name is, uh, is, is, uh, is uh, the Perks, and the dad's name is Michael. The boy lifts the lid, and he reads the papers, which confirmed his official adoption has been finalized. And he breaks down in tears. He doesn't even say a word. He's overwhelmed in awe. But he's adopted. And he stands up, and all he can do is hug his father. And you might not be able to hear it in the video, but there's two children in the background that's saying, you're one of us now. And he wipes away tears. And the dad says, you're officially a perks. And the boy walks over to his new mother, uh, who hugs him and tells him, we love you, buddy. She kisses him on the head, and she said, we just got the papers a couple days ago, and just in time to put under the tree. Isn't that awesome? And there's a young girl who's adopted also, and she hugs her mom, new mom, and one of the children claim, you can hear her, barely hear her, but she says, forever and ever. It's a picture of what we have in the gospel. walking around with those papers. He won't let him go. Why? They're a symbol of what's happened. His position's changed. Your papers are being sealed, are, are marked with a seal of the Holy Spirit, the Bible says. It's a, it's a down payment. It's a, it's a proof of what's to come later. It's because of Jesus. In Hebrews 2. But we see Jesus. 
made it little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Should cause your heart to worship for what he's given you, what he's put, where he's put you. I don't know what you're struggling with. We, in our world, might feel insignificant. Certainly in the holidays, there's the bustle of life. There's the busyness. There's circumstances beyond our control. There's suffering. I wander around feeling lost in a crazy world. Do you know what Jesus has given you and he's done? you know where he's placed you? That's the point of Hebrews 2. Jesus in his glory and his deity... Jesus is just as glorious in his humanity. It's true. It's our heart should worship. In your circumstances of life, there's nothing better that can happen to you in the gospel. There's nothing gloriously eternal and life-changing that will ever outweigh what Jesus has done and given you. Jesus tasted death to restore the glory in you. Let's pray.